on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. You have to know that the reader is going to be asking, what is the point? And if you're doing your job, if the work is doing its job, the writer never actually gets to the question because the answer is always being given to them. They never have to think, what's the point? Why am I reading this? Because the work of the draft or the work of the final product is answering that question before it even comes to the reader's mind. So the writer has to be thinking, my reader is going to be asking me for this sentence, for this word, for this paragraph, for this section. Why is it here? Why am I reading it? And it has to be clear and crystal. Welcome to May the Record Reflect, the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Buckmelter, and joining me today is legal writing expert, Catherine Dubois. Our chat today will round out our spotlight on communication skills for trial lawyers. And with Catherine, we're focusing on the final important piece of the puzzle, writing skills. Catherine has been teaching legal analysis and communication to both law students and practicing attorneys since 2008, after a very successful career in litigation at Jenner and Block in Chicago and Jones Day in New York City. Currently, she is a faculty member at Brooklyn Law School and serves as the program director for NIDA's Writing Persuasive Briefs course, which is on tap for this month. Catherine, it's a pleasure to have you. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to my COVID bunker and podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. We're doing well. It's been a it's been a change of pace, obviously, and we're managing as well as we can. Well, let's distract ourselves from such worrisome thoughts for just a little while. Shall we talk about legal writing? Sure, let's do. I'd like to open by asking if in your experience, do you find that lawyers more so than the average person actually enjoy the prospect of writing or is it to them just a necessary evil like to most other people? Oh, I don't know. I I don't think that lawyers are much different when you think about writers. Uh, Writers are writers. Um, uh, And if you care about what you're writing and you care about being understood, then you are going to probably struggle through the process of writing just like anybody does. And lawyers are just like everybody else. To some of them, it's a painful process. And to some of them, they really have understood the process and now they enjoy it. I work with lawyers exclusively. So I don't know exactly what it's like in other fields, but I do work with people who see writers in other fields and they're, they're going through the same struggles that lawyers are. And some of them are hating it and some of them are loving it. So when they do work with you, what are the, the skills that they want to learn or what do they hope to learn about writing? So everybody that comes to work with me is really looking for uh, a way to be understood and a way to be uh, more concise and more brief. So generally anything that a writer would be looking for. What lawyers usually come to me for is looking for a more persuasive style. They want to find the more persuasive word or the more persuasive way of writing something. What we usually end up working with and what we're focusing on is organization, framework, and writing for the audience. Almost exclusively, that's what my curriculums end up being in the end. Okay. So then let's dive right into that. Um, What does a timeline for a writing project, a brief, for example, look like? Every project is first and foremost going to be dictated by the deadline, obviously. If you've got a deadline looming, you've got to figure out what your particular process is going to be based on that deadline. 
um, when we have the luxury of not having a deadline, we, we can be a little bit more fluid with the way that we're going to spend our time. But generally speaking, you're going to break it into the stages of writing. You are always going to have a stage that is the figuring out your law, figuring out your research, getting words on a page as disorganized or as stream of consciousness as you can at the very beginning because you're putting everything on the paper. Uh, that's like the whiteboarding phase. The next stage is always going to be, or at least it should be, your organization phase. You're putting what you figured out into a framework so that you can then start thinking through actually fleshing out that framework with drafting, which would be your third stage. And finally, uh, your editing stage, which is really you're fixing that draft and then finally proofreading. And, and if you've got three weeks to work on that, then my recommendation generally to writers is that you spend 10 to 20% at the early stages of brainstorming and getting a draft onto the page. You want to get as quickly as you can words onto a page. Then you want to spend 10% of that time on framework, making sure you've got a structure together. The rest of the time is going to be editing. So you're looking at 50 to 60% of your time is editing and retooling that draft. And that's where the work comes in. So if you've got two weeks, you're going to break your two weeks into that time frame. And if you've got 24 hours because something is due and you got it late or you procrastinated to 24 hours, then you still have to do those four things. You just now have to do them in a, in a very, very shortened space. Is there a particular step that you find lawyers are omitting or not prioritizing that makes it harder for them to write? It kind of gets in their way of writing fluidly and, and, um, and getting their point across. Yeah, I think, I think what I find often is, especially when I'm working with practitioners, which are people who are almost always on a very tight deadline, um, we go through their step of their process. How do you do your writing process? What are you working on? Exactly what do you do? And nine times out of 10, they are explaining to me that because of their deadline, they're skipping their framework stage. I see. They're, they're not putting things into an outline. And when that happens, you end up losing your efficiency in your process and you end up with a very disorganized final product because all you're doing is proofreading something that was never well organized in the first place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if, if you're creating an outline from the very beginning, you know where to slot things in. And that just takes out so much of that kind of writer's block or fear of facing that, that blank page that gets you stuck and you can't get out of your own way. Yeah, outlining really does solve a lot of the writer's struggles issues, exactly what you just said about writer's block, because I tell students or, or even practitioners, if you're, if you're at the writing block phase, if you are struggling with something and you can't move forward, take that framework and pick a different section and start writing in that section for a while. But if you haven't done the framework, then you can't, you can't use that technique to break out of whatever block you're in. Right. And I love that tip that if you're stuck at a particular spot, like don't start at the beginning, start wherever it's easiest. Um, in my experience as a writer, I did that a lot in college. Like I never would start at the beginning because I don't know what I wanted to say. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't start at the end. I wouldn't give myself a title for a paper. I would just jump into what I knew and, um, let those ideas start to develop and it gave me momentum. And I think that's a really valuable tip for other people to learn too. Exactly. And that goes to a, a misconception that I think I have a, with a lot of my students, which is. I need to write the same way the reader is going to read it. If I'm going to present an introduction, a statement of facts, and then an argument to my reader, I need to start with my introduction, then my statement of facts, then my argument. And within my argument, I need to go with my conclusion and then talk about my law and then talk about my application. Therefore, I should write it that way. 
But the way we write it usually is actually in the exact reverse way for the reader to be able to approach it. We should start with our argument and figure out what we're going to say and work backward from there so that everything is fluid from beginning to end. So you mentioned the, the reader and what the reader's needs are. What are some of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves as writers um, about our audience when we begin a writing project? So the first thing I would say there is I wouldn't start with the audience at the beginning. So usually our first step in writing um, is, is for us. We are our own audience. And I think it's really, really important as writers to embrace that phase of drafting, which is us trying to figure out what the legal issue is and what the answer to the question is. And I think that's what we need to focus on when we're at audience at the beginning. Once we've figured it out then, then I think audience is the only thing at issue. It's the only stage and it's the only thing to think about. You, you get your answer, you get your issue, you figure out your framework for yourself. You figure out your answer and then you have to take all that work that you did and you have to make it readable to the audience. And that question is simple. You have to ask yourself at every stage, you have to know that the reader is going to be asking, what is the point? And if you're doing your job, if the work is doing its job, the writer never actually gets to the question because the answer is always being given to them. They never have to think, what's the point? Why am I reading this? Because the work of the draft or the work of the final product is answering that question before it even comes to the reader's mind. So the writer has to be thinking, my reader is going to be asking me for this sentence, for this word, for this paragraph, for this section. Why is it here? Why am I reading it? And it has to be clear and crystal at the moment that the reader gets. Brilliant. How do you organize a document then, um, both on the macro level and on the micro level, so that it hits all of those targets? It's cohesive, logical, leads the reader to the conclusion you want them to reach. So the thing is, is I love this question. I love this question from my students, and, and I love it from my practitioners because it, it, it reminds me of why I love law so much. I'm a very logical-minded person. I like to think through an answer in a step-by-step process. And law is that. There's almost always a test. And if there isn't a test, then the lawyer gets to create a test for the judge to apply in order to get the answer that they want. And I'm not saying that law isn't complicated. I'm not saying there's not deep intricacies within those tests. But if you know the test, then you can lead the reader from the first step to the last step in a logical, simple way. And that is your framework. You have to be organizing around the test that the judge or the client or the supervisor or whoever it is that's going to be reading this document has to go through to get the answer that you're presenting to them. That's the number one stage for a good argument and framework is, is, is providing that legal framework. And after that, the most important thing for readers is content. Uh, all the studies and all the science shows that readers get more information and they retain it for longer if they're provided the context up front. And context is provided in your introduction. It's provided in the roadmap to what you're going to tell them. It's provided by the subheadings and the, sub- and the headings. It's provided by your logical legal framework within an argument. It's provided by topic sentencing and good strong paragraph. And that's where you get your framework for, for a well-reasoned and well so when you were talking about creating your own test sure could you explain that just a little bit more that sounds like a creative process 
Yeah, that's what's great about law is, you know, we come from a legal system that's either going to be a statutory framework or a common law framework or some combination of the two. But either way, we're looking for the process by which the court's going to have to move through either factors or elements or balancing pieces of a puzzle. And, and if, if there's not something laid out in the statute that says in order to meet the elements of this claim, you have to meet one, two, and three, then we have to, as lawyers, explain to the reader what the test would be if a test existed. And so we get to create some of that. And the great thing about being a lawyer is sometimes we get to create it within a statutory framework or within a common law test that exists already, because we can take the cases that are out there and say, there's a statutory test here, but this second element is a little confusing. And the test to understand this secondary element comes from, from common law. So let me explain to you court what courts are doing in past cases to apply this test, and you get to create that test for the court and explain to them how they need to move through it. So there's a there's a very creative process in the law, and the, the side that wins is the one that created the most compelling test for the court, the one the court wants to apply because they think it's the best one. Yeah. So what are some important practices that can help writers develop that creative process? I think that when people hear about the creative writing process, they immediately assume that it's strictly for fiction writers. But as a professional writer myself, I know that the practices that I do in my daily life have really paid off in the in my ability to write um, on the fly and take it in new directions. And so I'm hoping that we can talk about that a little bit so that our um, listeners can pick up that wisdom from both of us. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and I, I've said since I started my career in writing when I knew very little about what I was talking about. A good writing is good writing, no matter what you're doing. Um, and some of my favorite aha moments with my students are when we're talking about a particular theme or a particular idea in legal writing, and I can make the analogy uh, to good fiction writers, where you know you know you have a good fiction writer when that that detail or that piece of the story that happens on page seven of the first chapter, the red ribbon in her hair that the writer highlights comes full circle by the end because no connection is left unturned. No word on the page is left without a reason for being. And obviously with legal writing, we are not writing a page turner. We are not, you know, hopefully we are not surprising the reader in the end. Readers don't like that in legal writing. They want to know where you're going and they want to be able to find it all the way through. But if you think about it, even fiction writers are doing that too. There's nothing more frustrating when I'm writing fiction than having some a twist in the story that is so far afield that I didn't see it coming. And that's frustrating. And, yeah. and, and as a reader, you realize that a good fiction writer is giving you those clues all the way through so that when that twist comes at the end, you say, oh, of course. Oh, where did this come from? But oh, mm -hmm. of course. And that's what legal writing is doing too. We're obviously just not doing it with the same um, goal in mind. It's not as much as we like to be entertained by our legal writing, it's not for entertainment. It's for uh, legal analysis and thinking through a problem. So we want to be more on point. But we're still thinking through framing and similar ideas and telling a compelling story and making sure it's in the right organization and not putting anything on the page that isn't necessary to understand the story and the argument. How do you get past a writing block? 
think the thing that you want to understand about writer's block, at least in my perspective, is that everybody's writer's block is different. So we all have different places that we struggle or that we find that we either don't have a plan or we don't have a process or we don't have a, a historical um, uh, experience with so that we can move through a place that we get stuck in writing. So the first step in writer's block is recognizing where you're going to find your writer's block. So for example, you might be really, really good at research and really, really good at getting the ideas onto the page. And then consistently, you stop there and you put it down until the deadline and then you end up zooming through and getting kind of a, 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 a thrown together piece because you've procrastinated. And that procrastination is the expression of your writer's block. So you want to recognize in your old writing, where is it that I fall apart? So personally, I know I fall apart if I haven't done the framework in advance and I'm trying to take a draft to the final too quickly. I will end up not being able to do anything with the draft and I'll get frustrated and I'll want to throw it out the window. Yeah, that's like your skeleton that everything else hangs off of. Exactly. And so when I'm too rushed or I haven't gotten the skeleton just right yet, I'll find that I do other things like either put it down or I'll start proofreading in the middle of my drafting session, which is completely inefficient. And I, I, I have only been able to sort of recognize it and figure out what to do with that block, first and foremost, by recognizing where my blocks are. If you don't identify and take a conscious and diligent effort to figure out where you struggle so that you can figure out ways around it, basically, we, we talked a little bit earlier about recognizing that if you're struggling with one section, you go to a different section. That's one technique for writer's block, right? If you are stuck and you've got the white page, then you're someone that just can't start writing unless you know exactly what you're going to say. Then start writing on a piece of paper and do a stream of consciousness writing for a minute so that you can get something on the page for yourself. But the technique that you use has to be a technique that works for you and actually addresses the particular problem that you struggle with. So for example, for me, uh, the block I was just describing means that I had to recognize early that what I needed to do when I was struggling with the section was go back to my framework. And so now every time I find myself unable to move forward, I go back and I retool my structure and I find a simpler path forward. And when I find that simpler path forward, then it opens up places for me to write about and things for me to talk about. And it allows me to take things out that I'm struggling with or put things in that I need to work on. And it, it, it opens it up for me. As a writer, I never thought that there was a such thing as writer's block. I always thought, well, you're just not applying yourself. You're not sitting down and doing the work that you need to do. Um, I never had any trouble sitting down and just getting it out until a few years ago. I struggled with my creativity and my ability to write for a long time. And as someone who self-identified as a writer since a very young age, it was quite destabilizing. And I kept coming across mentions of the book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way. And it's kind of woo-woo. It's a little um, airy-fairy and um, kind of new agey. But I thought, you know, the universe keeps putting this book in my path. I, I guess I should check it out. And one of the practices in that is um, a daily journal practice where every morning you, before you do anything else, other than maybe get a cup of coffee or tea, feed the cats, you sit down and you just write, you free write for three pages and you, you don't think about what you're writing. You don't judge it. Maybe you don't ever read it again. You just kind of get it out. And what I found was that by forcing myself to write, it shut off that 
awful inner critic that lives in all of us who shuts us down and tells us, why are you writing this? You're a terrible writer. This stinks. Nobody, this is a boring idea. Nobody wants to read this. And it really helped open up that channel that had been blocked for so long. And now, even though I'm never happy with my first draft, because it is just a first draft, at least it's there. You know, I'm not confronted with that blank page that is so intimidating right at the get-go. So for me, um, perfectionism has been uh, a huge source of writer's block, but there are so many ways around it. And I think that gets to a really important idea for writers, especially new writers or writers that think they're, like you said, need to be perfect on the first draft. Mm -hmm. No writer writes a perfect first draft. Yes, that is so true. That's why there are quotes and quips from Truman Capote, who says, I believe more in the scissors than I do in the pen. I love that. And even Dr. Seuss, who, and I'm going to read the Dr. Seuss one too, if I can find it, because I love it so much. But he says, so the writer who breathes more words than he needs is making a chore for the reader who reads. Even Dr. Seuss has, in his inimical way, a a, a way of thinking through the fact that you have to edit. (laughs) Nobody is writing a good first draft. And so what, what happens with my students and with my practitioners is, they get caught up in this idea that I need to put into my reader's ear the first draft. And if I can't do that, I'm not a good writer. And what I encourage all of them to do is to embrace what I was saying before. You're going to write a writer's face first mm-hmm. draft. It is for you. You are figuring it out. You are getting ideas on the page. And every single minute you spend doing that is useful to what you need to create in what we call the shadow preparation for what you're writing use it, make use of it, but reorganize it so that it works for your final draft, which is for your reader, and be willing to edit edit it down to nothing if you need to. I really feel like the editorial process is where the magic for me happens as a writer. I read some time ago an essay that's in um, a book called Bird by Bird by the, the writer Anne Lamott. And uh, this essay is all about that idea that the first draft of anything is pure garbage, even for the most talented, skilled writer. You're right. It's absolutely for you. That first draft is for you and for no one else. And you have to get to that point. And you have to value it for what it is. Yeah. It is essential if you're thinking about it from the point of view of the writer. Yeah. I, I reread it, uh, that essay, a couple of days ago, preparing for our talk today. And I pulled out a quote that, I, that really just describes it perfectly. So here it is. Almost all good writing begins with terrible first efforts. You need to start somewhere. Start by getting something, anything down on paper. A friend of mine says that the first draft is the downdraft. You just get it down. The second draft is the updraft. You fix it up. You try to say what you have to say more accurately. And then the third draft is the dental draft where you check every tooth to see if it's loose or cramped or decayed or even, God help help us, healthy. So that kind of says to me, you know, everyone writes a terrible first draft. Don't judge it. Just shut up that inner critic by whatever means necessary and get it on the page. And I totally agree. And I love that book. And its very title suggests a solution to the problem of writer's block, which is just write in little pieces and take one step at a time and do bird by bird. 
And I love that concept. And I think it helps a lot of my students get over the, the, the struggle with writers. Uh, I think that everyone should read this little essay. So I'm going to include a link to it in the, the show notes for this. I want to circle back to what you were talking about, how when you are stuck and you have the self-awareness, that spark of, of recognition that, oh, I'm bogged down because I haven't developed my framework yet. I'm not working around that. Are there other basics that people might try if they're, they're stuck and maybe the framework is kind of there, but is there something, some other approach that they can look at to, to get, get over the hump? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I, I like to, to talk through when I'm working with people who are struggling with writing. And, and one of them is definitely framework. So making the easiest path forward is what framework does. It gives the reader a step-by-step approach, which is usually articulated in your subheadings or your header. But after that, the, the stages that you can apply to your writing that, that help you articulate something clearly and to the point have everything to do, again, with context, with providing your reader something that they know to expect and then giving them what they expect. So the things that I can work with with students include one important thing is making sure that you can say the issue that you're writing about in the equivalent of an elevator. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if you've, if you've heard of the elevator speech, and it's usually for networking, but I apply it forward to, if you can't tell me what you are writing about in the time it takes for me to get from floor two to floor five on an elevator, then you don't know exactly what this is about yet. And if you don't know what it's about yet, your draft is going to be flabby and all over the place. So if you're struggling, sit down and make sure you understand the issue. Put it on a little notepad and stick it next to your computer or use whatever resource you like. I sometimes write it on my notepad beside my desk. And another one is mastering paragraphing. When I talk to other lawyers and I talk to legal writing experts and even, even just other writers, I always end up talking about the importance of a strong paragraph, which means a really strong identifying topic sentence and every single sentence within that paragraph supporting that topic sentence. And what you come to realize very, very quickly is there is a very huge difference in writing with between good writing and struggling writing in just paragraphing alone. So if you are able to write a good topic sentence, put it in the right order, so a logical progression of paragraphs, and then support that topic sentence with on-topic sentences, you've got perfect organization. You have a, well, a, well, a well-structured a well brief, and it's easy to follow. That doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily the one that persuades the court, but it's going to be readable, and that's where you want to be. So knowing your purpose and mastering paragraphing, I think, are the two most important things after framework. Again and again, it just comes down to having a structure. Uh, almost a template to work with. And for writers, I think that can be useful. I know as, as creative people, and I'm one of them, I resisted for a long time the idea that there was a, a framework I should be thinking about or a template because I'm creative and I should be creating it out of whole cloth every single time. But the reality is your creativity comes within the way you use the word on the page. And if, you're, if you have the framework in place, you can have that template and still be creative within your sentences and your words and the turn of phrase and still have a template on the, on the page. And I think you can benefit from that. Yeah, there's no point in expending all that energy on something that is not all that creative. And so if you're following a template, following a structure, then 
all that energy you get to expend goes in the direction of creativity. And that's a much better use of your time and effort. It is a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between writing for the eye, where your reader or your your audience, I guess I should say, is reading your words versus writing for the ear, where your audience is listening to you, say, in um, in the courtroom during opening or closing, some such thing? Sure. So there's not a lot of difference, really, when it comes down to it. Uh, the huge difference and the difference that every writer needs to be aware of is emphasis and tone of voice, which obviously uh, is of no use to a writer and is of uh, exceptional use for, to a speaker. But when you're thinking through, and in fact, I recommend to my students often if they're struggling through trying to figure out the easiest path forward, I, I ask them to think through what they would do in oral argument and how they would explain it if they were speaking to someone, because that can help guide you in the way that you're writing about it. And I think that the thing that a reader, writer needs to know about a reader is that they are hearing in their own mind the words on the page as if they were reading it out loud to themselves. So it, it occurs to them in the same way that they would be hearing it, even if it's a reading process. So if you read something out loud and you trip over the wording or you trip over the phrasing or it's too long and you have to take too many breaths, that's happening to your reader as they're trying to read it too. So it's actually a really great technique for finding overlong sentences or awkward phrasing is to read it out loud, but you have to do it in monotone because that's the way it's going to hit your readers here. Oh, that's a really good tip. I, I do sometimes read things aloud myself and find that it's invaluable during that editorial process after you've written out your draft. Well, it's certainly good for proofreading, but I find it even good for sentence structure and making sure that the ideas flow. If they don't flow when you speak them, they're not going to flow in the reader's mind either. And there's some differences when you're thinking through oral argument and oral presentation. The listener needs those structural elements, those roadmaps, the signposts that tell the listener where they are, even more so than a reader does. Readers need them, but a listener needs them even more because a listener can't go back and try to figure out where you are and where you're coming from. For example, if you get confused when you're reading and you can't remember what element you're talking about, you can flip to two pages before and find the subheading and say, oh, we're talking about this element. But a listener can't do that. So a a speaker has to be mindful of the fact that a listener needs to be reminded where they are in the framework more regularly than a reader does. All right. Um, I want to shift gears back to working on your own writing and improving that. And I'd like to get back to the idea of proofreading your own work and that kind of recursive process of uh, editing and writing and rewriting. And I wonder why you think it's so hard for writers to proofread their own work. I, I mean, I think the easy answer is because we've figured it out. And we understand it. And how in the world can you not follow along with me? I'm, I'm here. I'm reading it. Um, so I think we don't see the things that are missing the way that the reader will see the things that are missing in our work. And it's because it's, it's so much a part of us. A couple of things work against writers uh, when we're talking about proofreading. And often that deadline, and sometimes it's complexity, and sometimes the bottom line is that it's the way our brains work. So we read, and when we read, our brains create 
words for us and create missing pieces because our goal when we are reading is to understand. And our brains are these amazing things that are remarkable in the way that they can they can correct something. Have you ever seen the meme with the the jumbled up words? You can still read it even though all the letters in each word is are jumbled. It's because our brains are correcting it for us because our goal when we are reading is understand the information. And so when we try to proofread our work and we start at the beginning and we read through to the end, we end up getting caught up in the substance and we end up reading in order to comprehend rather than reading in order to find errors. And our brains create properly spelled words. They create missing words. They create links between the ideas that are not actually on the page. And that comes from the fact that we already knew what we were supposed to say and trying to say. And so when we're reading for proofreading, we recreate that link for ourselves. And so it becomes impossible for us to see the missing links, the missing words, and the errors in our own work because our brains like basically perfect it for us, which is amazing, but is dreadful for a proofreader. Uh, what we have to do is get away from the content and read for just the mistakes, which requires a couple of, of, of couple of things. It requires that we try to get as much space as we can from what we've written and see it from the point of view of a reader rather than a writer. If you don't have time because you've got a deadline looming, then my recommendation is you've got to take at least a tea break so that you can get away from what you've, what you've written and come back and see it from fresh eyes. Other tips include printing it out on hard copy in a different font and maybe a different margin so that it looks different to you than it did when you were writing it. It's a good way to find errors and missing links. And finally, as we were saying before about reading it out loud, the best way to find a proofreading error is to read sentences in reverse order, starting from the end and moving toward the beginning, because then you will not you will not get caught up in content and you'll be able to see the missing words and the misspelled things and the missing commas and punctuation because you will never get caught up in the content and replace them with your amazing, phenomenal brain. So you're kind of uh, tricking your brain. Yes, you have to. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of brain, uh, I am fascinated by the fact that I actually think that I write better and more fluidly when I start out writing things by hand. And most people don't do that so much anymore. The keyboard is ubiquitous. Do you know very much about what the differences are and whether you yourself prefer to write by hand or start out a project by keyboard? Well, to answer the first question first, I think there, there are some studies out there that suggest for learning, using your hand and writing on a piece of paper like a notepad in a class is more beneficial than using your computer. But I'm not sure that the studies show that the difference is huge or vast in any way. And I think it comes down to personal preference. And I think the same goes for writing. You have to get your own habit and you have to get your own process in place in order to make the writing process work for you. And everybody's process is going to be different, but you want yours to be purposeful and deliberate and thought out. And if it means you do everything on your computer, then by all means, do everything on your computer. If it means that you do everything on a notepad, then write it all out and do it on the notepad. But the most important thing is that you do what works for you. For me, I'm one of those hybrids. So I have my Word document open. I have my research system open. Uh, and I also have beside me my notebook so that I have, while I'm writing and while I'm researching, 
I'm creating a document on Word, recording my research, my big ideas, some of my concepts, maybe even every once in a while creating a phrase or creating a topic sentence on the Word document that will eventually be my working document. But at the same time, I have beside me a pen and a paper so that I can make notes so that if I'm in the middle of something that I'm writing and an idea comes to me, I'll put it on that piece of paper. And the final thing that I do is if I come to a place in my research or my writing where I feel blocked, then I will get up from my computer, take my pad of paper and my pen, and either if I'm in my office, I'll go to my, my uh, office table, which is away from my computer. And if in my home, I'll go to a comfy chair and I'll work through the problem on paper with my pen before I'll go back to the computer to try to write it out. So are you putting any of these good writing practices to work on a current writing project? Right now I'm looking um, closely at the, the differences and the similarities that writers have in their writing struggle. I've been working with practitioners for almost as long as I've been working with students. I started working with Nita in, uh, I think, 2009 when I was at the University of Colorado and I had the, just a, a newbie legal writing professor and Nita reached out about these programs. And so I've been working with practitioners for almost as long as I've been working with students. And when I first started doing it, I was really nervous that I wasn't going to be able to reach the writers where they were because they were practitioners and they had all these years of experience. They must be at a higher level of writing than my legal writing students were at the university. What I found pretty quickly and what I've developed over the past 10 years is that there are a lot of similarities and trends in what legal practitioners struggle with in their writing. And I am exploring right now those trends so that I can recommend some things for legal writing professors on where we need to be focusing more on what we're teaching our students to more prepare them for the same kind of struggles that practitioners are having and make sure that they're prepared for that as they go into their practice. So is that a book that you're you're planning or is this? It'll be an article. Oh, okay. And uh, advisory for training. Yeah, advisory for, for other legal writing professors and, and hopefully perhaps even practitioners who can recognize in their own struggle what I'm talking to them about. Who's writing both legal and non-legal inspires you and is a joy for you to read? Because writers are always readers. And that's very true for me. Um, uh, I've been a reader since, you know, I remember as we all have been. Um, but I, I, I struggle with this question whenever I get it because I feel like the writers that inspired me at different times in my life are always because of the time of my life I was going through at that moment. And so it's it's the writers, I suppose, that I go back to that that stick with me, and that 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 I'll reread or even find phrases from. And that's anything from Vonnegut to Arundhati Roy, um, Nabokov, Toni Morrison, Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf, or all the fiction writers I can think of. I love poetry. Uh, I read Neruda and Auden and Maya Angelou a lot, just for the way those words take you out of the page and take you out of, of where you are in the world, which is what I love about reading. But I will say that now that I have a three-year-old running around, um, most of my reading <laughs> does happen around, uh, around children's fiction. We are constantly reading anything from Maurice Sendak to Mo Willems to Dr. Seuss. He is uh, three now, or actually he's about to turn four, I should 
website. Uh, and he's all of a sudden starting to like the chapter books. And so we are moving into Roald Dahl and E.B. White. And some of those are books I have not read since my own childhood and going back to them and finding these amazing, wonderful stories that even my son can enjoy and, and engage in, I find so, so amazing. Um, and we're we're currently uh, mourning the loss of the wonderful Tommy de Paula, who my son loves and we love, and and we we he, we lost him a few weeks ago, I think. And and he was a wonderful, wonderful writer, um, and and we read him regularly. Yeah, I just read about that. That's a shame. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you about the writing process, and I hope that our listeners have gotten some good tips. So we are heading into the the very last question, which is our fun signature softball. And uh, I want you to be completely self-indulgent when you answer this. I want you to be 0% sensible. <laughs> how would you spend a million dollars? A million dollars. How would I spend a million dollars? I think I would, I think I would take a couple of years off and convince my husband, which I don't think it would be hard to do, to charter a boat and sail for a year or two. And it's the perfect time for the boy. And it would be amazing. I don't think I could stop working altogether, which was my first instinct. I, I do love teaching way too much, and I love the writing process and working with the writers, but it wouldn't be bad to be on the ocean for a few months or a few years. You know, and under normal circumstances, that would sound heavenly anyway, but while we are all in our bunkers and not allowed to really leave, that just, that really is a dream. I hope you get your million bucks. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> So Catherine, thank you very much for being here today and sharing everything that you know about writing. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Marcy. I would like to say to our listeners that if you would like to have the experience of a lifetime and get one-on-one -on -one coaching with Catherine Dubois, I invite you to visit nita.org and click on programs. There you can learn all about her Writing Persuasive Briefs course, which is now open for enrollment and it starts May 14th. And while you're there, please be sure to check out the resources page to subscribe to May the Record Reflect, as well as catch up on episodes you may have missed. I do want to take this opportunity to invite you to tune into the next episode next month. You don't want to miss it because I will be talking about the myriad issues surrounding how to hold a remote hearing in the time of COVID. For the first time, I'm going to have two guests at once. One will be representing each side of the virtual bench. We'll have a judge on the bench, the Honorable Amy Hanley of the District Court of Douglas County in Kansas, as well as a practitioner before the bench, Ruben Gutman of the DC law firm of Gutman, Bushner, and Brooks. I'm really looking forward to talking to both of them as a way to share their invaluable guidance to you, our listeners and our practitioners. So stay safe, everyone, and I will catch you next month. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production.